You like Fireboy? I do. You're listening to Your Tables on Fire, a weekly conversation with the hottest game designers on Kickstarter. Here comes episode number seven with your host, Jeff. Hello, hello, it's Jeff Beck. Thanks for tuning in to Your Tables on Fire. Well, I'm here with Thomas Song, the founder of Table Forge and designer of Coteau. Actually, one of the founders. There's two of us. Just to... Okay, fantastic. Tom, tell me first, am I pronouncing that right? Is it Coteau or Katao? It's actually Keto. It's kind of a weird pronunciation there at the end with the Japanese, but Keto is fine. Keto. Okay, I'll, I'll try, and, try and remember that. No promises. Tom, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a photographer and graphic designer in real life, and then a group of us have been playing games together for probably over 20 years now. Oh my God, we're getting sold. <laughs> a few years ago, we decided to finally go ahead and start making games, you know, the one thing that we love. I've always been tinkering and making games since I was a kid, so this is something that just kind of was more natural with the design stuff and the photography and video stuff. So we started making some game ideas and seeing what we could do, and then Kickstarter really came on board and online around the same time that we started talking about all this. And due to the uh, generous and awesome backing and supporters of Kickstarter, we were able to make our first game, Iron and Ale. Since then, we've just been trying to grow and create some new games and see where it goes from there. Take a minute and tell us about your co-founder, since he's not with us. Oh yeah, my co-founder, his name is Troy. He is a firefighter in real life. And uh, wow. he is um, the person that we both, the two of us, kind of decided to go into the company together, even though... There's probably a group of like 10 or 12 of us that play games together. So it was just really us two. And then our friend JC kind of jumped on board to be our spokesdorf. He's very charismatic, outgoing, and he has the look and the personality for it. So he, he's been going to the conventions with us and kind of being the face for us and helping us out a lot. And how did you get into gaming? I can't, honestly can't remember a time that I wasn't into gaming if that makes sense. So I think the biggest thing that probably um, opened me up to the gaming world was Dungeons and Dragons, Second Ed, way back. Way back then. Yeah. Way back. And I'm sure that was a, a big thing for a lot of other people too. But I think the first time I tried playing Second Ed, I was like eight years old. I've always been into it. And then I even remember as soon as like the first time I remember making it, we started talking with my friends about different classes and different rule variants. And then I remember when I was like probably about 10, I would always try to grab my one friend to... Because I was always into the card games, too. I liked Speed and War a lot. I remember telling him, like, oh, well, you know, we should make this game where the cards are different and maybe the jack's a little bit stronger and he's got, like, you know, some hit points and stuff. Because based off of the D&D stuff, right? And then a few years later, we, our other friend was like, oh, you know, you should check out Magic the Gathering. So <laughs> we always did that, and then that got us really big into it. And, you know, now that I've, I'm talking to you, just thinking about it, since I was a kid, like five or six, I used to play chess all the time. So maybe that's kind of where it all started. And then it kind of developed from there. Do you still play D&D &D and other role-playing games? Oh, yeah. We haven't stopped. Like, <laughs> yeah, D&D, playing Edge of the Empire now. We've played Rifts. I'm really into GURPS, but it's really hard to find people to play GURPS because it's such an intricate system. Yeah, really into the D20s, the West End games. We used to play a lot of the Star Wars D6 back in the day. So yeah, pretty much a mixture of everything. I even tried some of the weird, crazy anime systems, which are really <laughs> funny. So any desire to develop your own role-playing system? To be honest, I already have probably three or four <laughs> <laughs> sitting back there in papers and notebooks on the shelf. But that's a really hard market to break into. And that really needs a lot of, commands a lot of respect, you know, 
rightfully so from the community. They're not going to just want any old person making a system out there. It's funny, every time I sit down and work on stuff, my notes from like years ago and stuff, the more systems I end up playing, the more you find out that a lot of designers with you have come to the same conclusion for the best way to do certain things. So it's almost like maybe if I just keep checking other stuff out, maybe there doesn't need to be a new system, you know? So you mentioned you started designing games just based on card games, maybe based on war. Yeah. How have your philosophies changed over time? The big thing that I think has changed over the time is you know, you've got to be fluid. You've got to change as you go and as the market changes. So going to Gen Con was a big eye-opener. We went to our first one in 2014. Or no, no, sorry, 2013. And then we exhibited 2014 and 2015, and we're going to exhibit again this year. But being able to see how much the community has actually blown up and to see all the games out there and try to get a feel for what people want, which is very hard to do. And I am by no means have been able to do that yet. I think now, as I get older, I realize that when it comes to playing games, it's not the systems, it's not the rules, it's not even the, th- well, maybe the th- maybe more theme, but it's really just about the memories you make that you were sitting at a table with friends and that you have memories for games. Like a lot of times our friends will sit around and we end up talking more about our D&D experiences than we do about real life experiences. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the end philosophy right now for me is just making sure that there's games that will leave you something to remember. Like there's a lot of people out there and a lot of things where it's just all focused on rule sets and balance and making sure the game is perfectly tuned. But I think you quickly forget that at the end, all that really matters is that you guys had a really good time together at the table. Right. So how do you design for that? Yeah, you know, that's that's a challenge. Um, Like I said, I, I have been making intricate systems and trying to do all sorts of weird variants of rules and come up with my own RPG systems and dice systems and everything. But when we made our first game, Iron and Ale, kind of just sat back and thought, right now, does our company need to make another worker placement game? Does our company need to make another co-op or war game or something like that? So you know, we all still like to go out, like we're not the shut-in types. So we were like, well, let's make something that makes people do more than just sit at the table. Like, we like to drink, so we were like, why don't we try to incorporate the two and make like a rowdy thing? And at the other same time, I was kind of, we were talking about making a dwarven game. And so we said, well, you know, it fits right and hand in hand. Like dwarves aren't just going to go work all day. They're going to actually go and get rowdy in the meat hall and fight and drink and carouse. So we made a game to reflect that. And uh, it's been received very well at the conventions for sure. And then obviously from our over a thousand backers. Where does your inspiration come from when you're designing a game? How does that process work for you? So I think first thing that usually comes is lots of discussion, really, with friends. That's really what it is, right? You just are all sitting around, you're playing games. And I really have a bad habit of anytime I'm playing a game, I'm like, wow, I wonder if they would have just done this or just changed this one little <laughs> thing. And usually it ends up with somebody saying, well, that would have been dumb if they would have. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you're right. We probably should. That's probably good that they didn't do that. But every once in a while we sit and we'll be like, you know, it'd be really cool if they would have done this. So biggest thing I think for making it is that I just want to find something that hasn't been done, which is, you know, obviously really hard to do. And obviously everything has probably been done in some form that we don't know about. We just want a, a little variant of a spin on something besides just the same old game. And I think that's where it starts. That's where hopefully, you know, we can connect with those people that also agree with us. Well, let's talk about Keto. For those who aren't familiar with it, give us the pitch. Basically, Keto is a samurai reflex game. When we were at Gen Con last year, not last year, sorry, the year before, we started seeing kind of like a, a little bit of a trend for like some dexterity games. Like they're not, they weren't like super popular, 
like not like everybody was like clamoring on it, but it was like a kind of an idea that we saw some stuff there and we were like, wow, this is a really cool idea. You know, maybe people were actually doing more than just sitting at a table talking and rolling dice, right? So that kind of butted into with, I'm a big fan of Karuta, which is an ancient Japanese game that features the same kind of reflex mechanism based off of using your mind to have a sharpness of recognize these poems. I found out about Kruda through an anime called Chihaya Furu, which is a really popular anime. Well, was the anime kind of comes and goes. And then that gave Kruda kind of a spotlight. We were originally going to make Keto kind of like a Western variant, but we realized quickly that there's tons of Western games out there. So we didn't want it to get really muddled. So we switched to the samurai variant of it and maybe do a Western expansion later. That's kind of how it came about. Keto is a reflex game, but at the same time, there is a strategic element to it as well, where you get combat boost cards, and there are seven areas to represent dice rolling of a 2d6, and you can put your boosts in different numbers, and then when you roll a dice, hopefully you get that number variant. And then there's other cards that let you switch those around, and if you accidentally hit the wrong card, you get to switch it around as well, yours or your opponent's. And what do the boosts do for you? The boost, there's three different types. There's offense, defense, and then kata. Kata help change the flow of the game. So for instance, there's the one where you can move the cards around. If you get that one, like let's say you put your combat card, which is a bonus buff to damage, in seven, six, seven slot, because seven and six are the top two numbers out of the 12 to roll. So I could move that into, let's say, like a 12 spot to make it harder for you to get that. Or I could move that into like a two, three spot. And then you could do the vice versa to me. And then there's defense cards, which help me negate damage. And you can also move those around. And we also have some other tricky cards in there as well. Hmm. Here's a completely unfair question. I'll probably end up editing it out, but (laughs) just for fun. Yeah. It seems like such an obvious idea to have quick draw, but that you're fighting each other. Why has this not been done before? You know, uh, that's... I'm on board game geek right now, just kind of updating our stuff. There are over 82,000 games out there. On, it's insane, right? So there is a very good chance that something like this has been done before, right? So that's the first question we ask ourselves whenever we come up with a game idea is, why hasn't this been done before, right? The first obvious answer is, well, maybe because it shouldn't be, <laughs> right? Maybe because <laughs> no one wants it to be. Or two, it probably has been, right? So then we go search through the databases and we try to Google every possible way to find out if this has been done before, right? So we don't start working on something that you know, because we don't want to copycat something, which obviously all games are technically a copycat, right? But whatever. So yeah, I honestly don't know. So either it isn't popular and maybe people don't want something like this, or maybe it's already been done and we just don't know about it, right? Hopefully it's the case that we just happen to be the first to really develop it and then people will catch on and find out about it. And that's what we're hoping for with it, putting it on Kickstarter. What do you think? You know, I always try and think of a game as who do you get to be when you play this game? Yeah. In your game, you get to be this quick-wielding samurai master. Who doesn't want to be that? You know, that's fantastic. (laughs) Thank you. But you get to do it in a very physical way because it is a dexterity game. It just seems like something that should have been done 20 years ago. Right. For the life of me, I can't think of anything. Right. And the same with us, but who's to say that, right? You and I, like, there's so many games, right? It's so crazy. But yeah, I'm with you. you. You summed it up pretty well. Like, yeah, we really want people to feel like they are whatever theme that we're giving them. And we put you in that shoes. Like the rules even too, like when you start the duel, your hand is on your hip like you have a sword. We want players to stare at each other in the eyes. And for us, theme and experience is priority. How long have you been working on Keto? 
I have been working on the idea of Coqueto for at least two years, probably really cracked down for the last year and a half. And then the last like six months has just been testing and getting things together and figuring out all the little tweaks and stuff. So it's been a while. So over those two years, how did it start? How did it evolve? Oh my God. (laughs) So it has gone through four or five probably revisions. It, It went from everywhere from a thematic game and maybe I'll be giving away some stuff here, but whatever. It went from originally thinking that maybe it would be like this morality god game. Don't, don't, <laughs> just It's all over the place, right? So like from that to, I was thinking of making it more like a war game where you actually had armies and you were picking each other's armies off. And then we went to from that to like a Roman theme. And then we tried a fantasy theme. And then we went to the Western theme. And then we said, okay, the Western's probably overdone. So then we switched to the Samurai. Yeah, it has been all over the place. And I, I wish I had more pictures, but I have probably made eight or nine various playtest versions of it. They look really bad. Obviously, you don't graphic design completely until you've got the right one. So the theme has changed a lot. What about the mechanic? Has that been pretty static? Yes, the mechanic has changed a lot too. Well, at the core, it was always the reflex thing. You're dueling off and you're facing off and you, you need to be quicker than the other player. From there, though, we really had to figure out what else to do, because obviously it can't just be that. The Bushido dice rolling element that we had wasn't in there until this version, because before we were wrestling with ideas of drafting, getting more guys. Maybe when you beat somebody, you get points and you can spend them. For the Western theme, we were thinking maybe you can get money when you beat somebody, and then you can spend that to boost your guy. There's there, there's There's been so many things about it. And We'll see how well everybody receives it, and hopefully people jump on the same page with it. But I, I really wanted it to be more strategic, quick, and competitive. And to do that, I think you need to get rid of a lot of the noise, which is buying stuff, purchasing more stuff, upgrading, you know, stuff that most games have. We kind of almost brought it back to its core, stripped it down a little bit, and wanted it to be more chess-like. Not chess-like, but because obviously chess is way more complicated, but more quick-thinking, processing, action. What percentage of a winning round would you say is reflexes versus strategy? Obviously, it is still going to be reflex. So I would say no matter what, if you're faster than the other person, you know, and this is something we actually discussed in depth with a lot of our friends and and people because, you know, that is kind of a concern for some people. Like, well, what if they're faster than me? But, you know, I, and I, I might be going out on a limb here, but I really think games are headed in a direction where it's all about being fair and everybody wins. When I was growing up, that's not how games worked. Like the first time I played chess and I played magic and I played any other game, I would get my butt kicked. And (laughs) that for me never just made me say, well, I'm done. Can't do this anymore. For me, it meant get in there and try harder to figure out why you're not winning. But I think that element is quickly going away and I'm not sure why. So in this game, yeah, probably 60, 70% of the time, if your reflexes are quicker, you're going to win. We give a little bit of a handicap to players that are a little bit slower. But it's actually kind of a strategic thing, too, that people that are faster can actually use as well. At the end, I was like, I want it to be that way. Hopefully, there are gamers out there that will appreciate that and try to get quicker and not just give up. But we'll see. Clearly, you had to go through some polishing, some playtesting to get it to the point where it's at. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, we played a lot of variants where we had a lot of discussion, too, where losers would get bonuses for losing. People are like, well, you got to give losers something because they're going to get discouraged because they're not fast enough. And I'm just like, what game do you give the loser the reward for (laughs) losing a round, right? Like, I just don't understand. (laughs) I don't even know where that mentality comes from, right? Like, I understand that there's like some top rules to game design. I forget who wrote them. But one of them is that you keep all players in until the end. 
and I, I understand it, but this is a dueling game, right? So if, if people die or if people lose, like, unfortunately, they're going to fall off. And I mean, things like that happen. Like I said, one of our biggest things is the experience. And we want people to have something that they can't. Anybody can go buy another worker placement game or anybody can go buy another co-op game, right? We want to give them something that's like, oh, wow, there's nothing like this right now. Something that they'll remember, right? There was a lot of discussion, a lot of talking about the little knobs and things to twist and turn for the way that the game works. In the end, we kind of settled with this. Any big aha moments during the playtesting that dramatically changed the game? The biggest aha moment was probably when we decided to add the Bushido cards with the dice rolling element. Because before then, it was just tons of, are they going to buy stuff? Are you going to give them points? You know, how do hit points work and everything? So at the end, that is the strategy, like being able to put your boost cards in the different dice value slots that you need them to go into and being smart about where they go and then be able to move the other person's. And then also we gave that gave us enough of a small penalty for mishitting because mishitting happens quite a bit. Accuracy is the other part of this game. So it's not just 100% speed. Accuracy is also, so we really do want you to feel like a swordsman samurai, right? Like you have to be accurate and quick. So when you miss hit something, that automatically allows you to move one of your Bushido cards or one of theirs into a different spot, which automatically makes it much harder for them to get what they were going for. We uh, added all that in. So that was the, probably the aha moment. It was like, oh yeah, this will be just enough, I think, to make it more strategic and more intricate, but not too much. Tell me about the moment where you said, okay, this is done, this is ready, let's launch the Kickstarter. <laughs> Here's the thing with Kickstarter. Unfortunately, it is quickly turning into a thing where it's just pre-orders for big companies. The market has changed very much. It's very surprising, actually. But gamers now, for various number of reasons, I think, expect a game to be 100% completely done. And I don't mean not developed. I mean manufactured, printed, art's done. Not the stuff, not the paint coat. They expect the paint and everything done versus just, we have the car done, but we need to pay for the paint and we need to pay for some of the other stuff, right? That's what Kickstarter is supposed to be for, right? We have the game done, but we need art costs. We need to get some audio tracks. We need to do all these little things that's just, you know, the paint. But unfortunately, people quickly need the game to be completely 100% shown to them, reviewed, played. And I don't know how, maybe that's the thing. Maybe Kickstarter is getting away from that. But like small-time publishers, we can't afford that. A game, even though it's not that big, like a Keto is going to have us a few thousand dollars in art costs. Like, you know what I'm saying? We're not, we're not rich. You know, I think anybody that tells you that they make games, they do it for the love. They're not doing it for the, the money, right? <laughs> right? Except for the big guys, maybe, right? But yeah, the big companies have kind of swooped in on Kickstarter and they show this complete 100% ready to go. They're not Kickstarting a game. They're just taking pre-orders, right? That has changed the Kickstarter market and mentality. So everybody needs that. So I would honestly say any real small publisher that needs to pay for art and all that kind of stuff, there really isn't a perfect moment where they're going to be like, this is 100% done. I'm, I'm totally okay with it. Like, it's, it's good. It's good to go. I think the game will be done. Like the rules, the mechanics, you know, that's all been through the forge and figured out. But I don't know if there's really a true moment because that's what stretch goals are for too, right? A lot of these Kickstarters too now are, are doing stretch goals. They're actually just part of the game, but they're just hiding it as stretch goals to make it look like they're doing more. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if that's actually something that a smaller company can actually ever sit and do, or should do, because they should be ready to give their backers more stuff. So how did that change your launch strategy? We had done Iron and Ale, and we've already done two, so we have a little bit of experience with it already. So I, I don't think it really, it didn't really change our strategy too much. We kind of knew where we needed to be to go ahead and get it done. 
when it comes Kickstarter time, really what happens, it's just me sitting for like a month, just doing graphic design every day for like 12 hours to get everything made and perfect. And, you know, then doing video and photos and getting the design and working with the artists. It's, it's fun. It's, it's actually, for me, it's a lot of fun, but it is just a lot of computer time of designing. So you've been up for, I think, nearly two weeks now. How are things going? You know, things are not as fast as we were hoping, considering this is our third Kickstarter. Things are going well. The last few days, we have picked up probably like 50 backers. I think the word's getting out there. Like, from our perspective, we didn't do a lot of pre, and we usually don't, but we probably should, but we didn't do a lot of pre-campaigning. We kind of just launched it out of the blue, and then we told all of our backers. So for where we're at and what we've been doing, I mean... It's, it's going pretty well. Like we have 175 backers right now and we're at almost $5,000 with 16 days to go. We should do fine. So I think once it gets funded and once people find out more about it, it'll start taking off even more than it has in the last few days. So we're pretty happy with it. What kind of promotion strategy have you used, you know, even post-launch? So post-launch, we have looked into a lot. Have you launched a Kickstarter? I haven't, no. Okay. So once you launch your Kickstarter, you're going to get inundated with emails. Like every day, one or two people will contact you with these promotional companies that you give them $500 and they'll give you their ROI will be like 6,000, you know, it's crazy, (laughs) crazy thing, right? So you have to kind of filter that all out. But we have since then been doing podcasts. The things that really, that we think really work are podcasts. You got to be really active on Twitter and Facebook. We've been doing some Facebook ads. We've been telling all the major news networks the gaming news networks about it. And hopefully it's kind of for them. I'm sure they're getting flooded. They have to just find it, post it. They can. We have a lot of backers that we've been sending emails to all of our previous over thousand backers for the iron and nail stuff. And then through word of mouth and through them retweeting and getting going on, hopefully that works as well. We've also put our banners on a couple smaller websites. We've actually talked to a lot of bigger Kickstarters and asked them how their board game geek and kick track and some of the more expensive ads have done. And they've all said that they either don't give them an RI or they just break even. So we're kind of looking into all that, but it's expensive to go on some of some of those are like $500 minimum to even promote something that I think once you've hit your goal, you can really start to look at. So what did you learn from your previous Kickstarter projects? You can bring to bear here. That the Kickstarter market is hit or miss through whatever algorithms the Kickstarter uses and through whatever word of mouth there are, like you just kind of have to go with it. You just can't take it personally. You have to realize it's something you really can't control too much. Like who knows the game that gets popular. Like I've been scouring through Kickstarters and talking to other creators and I've seen some amazing games that I don't know why they haven't taken off and it's just no one's heard about them through whatever reason. I think the one thing that we've learned that was really vitally important is if you have a lower goal and you can hit that goal quick, that is the big boost. And we've been slowly trying to get our goals lower and lower. But at the same time, we don't want to be in a position where if our goal was like 5,000 and we can't produce it, right? We still want our goals to be what they need to be based off of the finances and math and what we actually need. I've seen some goals on here for like 3,000, 5,000. And I, you know, those companies need like 15 or 20 to make it work. So, but it's smarter than because they actually end up getting it because then it just explodes, right? They get their funding day one, they can tell everybody they funded in day one, and then everybody jumps on board, right? They're just counting on over. Overachieving, right. which usually happens, but you don't want to be a company that can't deliver, right? I definitely don't feel like that's a good plan for the long road. We don't want to be in that position for sure. Yeah. And besides that, we've learned that Kickstarter backers are awesome. Like once they do find something they like, they support us through Iron Ale. They are loyal and some of the best gamers out there for sure. So after this project's done, what's next? 
we are actually working on another game that is going to try to take a more um, fun spin on the worker placement because there are so many out there that we do want to try to take a stab at it. We've got a couple of friends that are really into the Euro games and the worker placement games that are helping us do it. Some PhD guys and math math guys, so they're very smart and have all the numbers down. And, the, the, and then we are working with them, and we've actually been playtesting and talking about it for the last like three months. So besides that, we have three or four games that are kind of sitting on the shelf with some art that we're trying to figure out if we can figure those out. Hopefully, we will see how Keto does, and then we hope to have it for Gen Con. And then we're going to do some tournaments to really boost the uh, audience of it and then go from there. And we'll probably be at Gen Con every year, hopefully, and have something new to show every year for it. So give us some advice for an aspiring game designer that's looking to launch something. What would you say to them? I would say do it. Don't listen to all the noise. Don't listen to any discouragement. Just go for it. Like, do it if you love it. And realize that you need to love it because you're not going to, it's not something that's going to make, it's making you rich. <laughs> but that's not why we do it because we do it because we just love doing it. So. Well, Tom, I, I have to confess, the real reason I brought you on this podcast was not to interview you, but rather to play the Game Design Challenge. Oh, okay. <laughs> Here's how this is going to work. I'm going to randomly pick a game theme. Okay. Give it to you, and then just off the top of your head, pitch a game back to me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So I'm just going to get a name here, and or a theme, and the theme is going to be... Park Rangers. I actually had a friend that used to be a park ranger, so I think you could make a pretty cool park ranger worker placement, right? Or maybe you have a board where there's tons of events going on, maybe they're randomized through card draw or through token flips, and then you'd have a chart off the side, kind of like um, some of the other games do, where you flip the token and it tells you what order that these events are happening. Maybe you have a map of a huge park, right? And then they're broken up into sections, and then each section has a flip. And throughout the turns orders, you can flip over more and more as they go. And they'll tell you what event is happening there. And maybe each player only has one or two park rangers, and they can only send so many out of time. And at the same time, the park rangers need to be equipped. And maybe there'll be bonus cards that can give you, like, the helicopter that flies in to help, or, you know, the extra ranger help, or the trucks that can get you quicker there. You know, maybe there's some fires that you have to put out, and maybe you have a couple rounds to put those fires out. Bear attacks, you know, people love bear attacks. <laughs> Got to so, have bear you know, attacks. Got to have bear attacks, right? So, you know, stuff like that. I think, yeah, you could totally make a game with that, any theme, and I think that would work as well. I like it. <laughs> Park Rangers. Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. And all the best of luck with your Kickstarter project and future endeavors. Yeah, you too. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that was Thomas Song, the founder of Table Forged and the designer of Keto, currently on Kickstarter. You've been listening to Your Tables on Fire. Follow us on Twitter at TableFire and check out our website, yourtablesonfire.com. Also, we're now on iTunes, so go over there and give us a five-star rating. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.